was a boy who had a band of brothers. There was a boy who had a band of brothers. He left to meet in council in the wilderness of Maine. He left to meet in council in the wilderness of Maine. And if you asked him who it was he lived for. And if you asked him who it was he lived for. He'd tell you of Camp Cobbacy so far, far away. He'd tell you of Camp Cobbacy so far, far away. Far away! Far away! Far away! He'd tell you of Camp Cobbacy so far, far away. He'd tell you of Camp Cobbacy so far. Good evening, Cobbacy families, and welcome to another Cobbacy Evening Fireside Podcast. The Braves and the Warriors are in their bunks. The sun has gone down over Cobbacy itself, and it's time for you to find out what happened today. Normally, blue sheets are put on each wooden breakfast table, and they are the color of a main summer sky, and each boy and each counselor pours over those blue sheets to see what will happen today. But not today. No, today, the boys sat quiet and serious at breakfast with nothing to look at because they were eating and thinking about the day's competition because we were on day six of Color War 33 2019. Reveille was at 7.45, silent breakfast at 8.30, cleanup at 9.15, inspection at 9.30. And at 9.45, the final regular round, round 10. Group one had round the bases. Group two had combined soccer kick. Group 3 had combined baseball throw. Group 4 and 5 had cross country. Group 6 had combined football kick. And group 7 had volleyball. Group 8, round the bases. After all that's done, and I should say here, just to explain how things work, is that, I think I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but the way Color War works is that the contest goes on until it is mathematically impossible for one team to catch up and then it's over. Last year, that meant a truly epic finish in front of some van lights on Bluey Field in the dark. We finished at night because we had to get it done. We were at the end of day six, and we just had to get it done. And it was one of the most epic finishes. I'm not going to spoil it by getting into it right now, but the finish today was of similar ilk. It was great. Tugs of War at 11, and then, if necessary... What was going to happen was the giant around the bases relay. Then, of course, the hatchet ceremony. We're going to have lots of found sounds scattered through this podcast, so I'm not going to do a normal break in between and you know go to a second half. We'll just we're just going to do the whole thing, right in a big row. I think that before I get into all the stuff that happened, I should talk about the nature of this particular contest. On one side, you have the Gray Scorpions, led by James Metcalf, our waterfront director. He is a young but extremely capable leader who is really good at delegating, and we learned this week, really good at spontaneous, hilarious, rabble-rousing speeches. He has a laconic calmness to him, and so when the fire comes out, it is a surprise. He was going up against Jamie Miller, our head of soccer, who himself is calm, quiet, and laconic, who also is given to flights of rhetoric that can get everybody fired up. So there's a really pretty sweet quid pro quo going back and forth between the two generals all week long. They are friends and quite respectful of each other, and the competition was fierce. So there's that piece. The second thing I would say 
is that, especially in the last three days, I'm not sure any team had a lead that was greater than 30 points off any other team. And you can get 30 points in a swing in a single round. Easy. So, blue would get ahead. Gray would eat it up. Gray would get ahead. Blue would eat it up. Blue would dominate an entire set of rounds and jump way out. By way out, I mean 30 points. And Gray would dominate the next set of rounds. And these are rounds that rotate. You know, Group 1 does around the bases. Then the next time, Group 2 does around the bases. Then Group 3 does around the bases. And so, just like we were talking about in the giant relay, where one team was never more than a few steps back from the other, that pretty much played out through the entire color war. For six days, the same thing happened. So, you can imagine the excitement in the morning, and then after round 10, when, before anything started with Tugs of War, it was 1,018 blue to 1,031 gray which meant literally anything could happen. It would be conceivable for Blue to win all of the Tugs of War, each worth five points, and win without going to round the bases. Or it could be conceivable that Gray would close out Blue and win in Tugs without going to the bases. The math works like this. Blue had to win three individual Tug of War battles. So they had to win either Staff, they had to win three out of Staff, Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. They had to win three of those. If they did, they mathematically pushed the entire contest to giant round the bases. Gray just dominated the staff tug of war. They had Big Danny Damon, a defensive end. He's, I don't know, six, five, three, sixty. He's such a, just a huge man. Then group eight swung the other way, but then seven, six swung one way and seven swung the other and eventually got down to Group six, and blue one, and that pushed it all to around the bases. Now it was just going to be one giant relay. set the stage for the giant around the bases relay it is 11:45, maybe noon the air is cool a little humid skies gray it is a solemn event giant around the bases it is not something where there's a lot of cheering and chanting there's some heavy traditions around it i was this is my sixth summer and this is only the second giant around the bases relay i've seen every other color war has gone to tugs and out in tugs because the difference was so great that that's where it was won. The way it works is there's a small number of boys from each age group, the fastest of each age group, and they run in relay around first, then second, then third base, and then home again. They are carrying a baton. You must leave home base with the baton. If you don't have it, you have to go back and get it. If you drop it, you have to pick it up and keep going. If you fall down, you have to pick yourself up and keep going. Wipeouts happen all the time. Drops happen all the time. Blue team goes first. There is a purity to the giant around the bases relay because it's just how fast can a group of kids go. It's just a raw time. And in the moment when it's being run, there is no cheering. There is no encouragement. It's just the sound of 300 people, 340 people 
watching, breathing, exclaiming all at the same moment, and someone going as hard as they can. You can hear, I don't know if you've ever been to like a big, huge professional sports venue when their attendance is down and you can hear the players breathing and moving. You can hear the rustling of their clothes. This is like that. The boys going around the bases, you could hear their footfalls. You could hear one boy running on his heels. You could hear another boy running on his toes. You could see how his shirt was moving. You could see his hair snapping in the breeze. There were a couple boys whose hair was waving. They were going so fast as they hauled around these bases. There are some boys who you could have sworn had no business being in the lineup until they started sprinting. And then you couldn't believe how fast they were going. And there's others who you knew were fast until they started going, and you couldn't believe how fast they actually were going. Some of these fast boys run in tiny steps, millions of footfalls, it seems, but going so fast, sort of like a cartoon character. And then others, long, lanky strides. I think now of Brian Luffy, uh, of, of Alvy Ackerman, of Meisner, running with these huge, loping, fast strides. And then there's the true natural sprinters, where it just seems like they have two or three gears that the rest of us don't have. The one I think of here, maybe Hochi in Sachem, and especially Neo. So fast. He has a bullet-like intensity about him as he accelerates, and his stride is clean, and he's just such a pure sprinter. It's a beautiful thing to watch, such that the only noise you heard was the gasping as Neo took off, because not everybody had seen him run, and it is a thing to behold. They finish, both both groups finish. Oh, I should say one crucial thing is the tradition is you don't cheer at all until it's the last runner. The last runner starts off and that whole team leaps to its feet, exploding in a, in a concussion of sound because they are almost going to win, they think. The only people who have time on this are Griff and Tom. No one's allowed to time it. Exploding down the track as the cheering echoes through this quiet grove that surrounds Bluey Field. And then, finally at the end, in every single end, every single end of every single race, every single leg, there is a giant counselor to catch the boys as they pass home plate, because they're just trying to accelerate all the way through. And this is perhaps one of my favorite traditions, because in the first, for, for Blue, it was Big Braden Garden. And for Gray, it was the general himself, James Metcalf. Both are big, strong men. 
And some of the boys were going so fast that they had to pick the boy off his feet and hug him as he spun around, dissipating all that kinetic energy and then setting him back down on his feet. But in order to do that, you must hug him. So there's a, a athletic-induced super hug at the end of each one of these runs. And then all quiet for the announcement. Griff comes up, says the thing he says about everyone doing a great job and executing well. And then he announces it. And it sounds like this. Blue. 11 minutes, 52 seconds. Gray. 11 minutes, 44 seconds. <laughs> Remarkable how that all happens, and you can imagine the feeling being on the on the field. Blue's head suddenly down, gray exploding in excitement. And then there's the hatchet ceremony, and at the hatchet ceremony, I managed to read one of my favorite quotes to the boys. Somebody put this on the door to my to the room where I was going to do my PhD orals, and I have treasured it ever since. It was a friend who wanted me to remember. It didn't matter what happened in that room. It mattered more that I was approaching the room. And it goes like this, by Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who, at the best, knows in the end the triumph of high achievement? And who, at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat? Teddy Roosevelt read it to the boys, and then I admonished them to know that none of them were cold nor timid these last six days. They were men of color war and men of cobbacy, and it was something to behold indeed, top to bottom, all six days long. And that is another informal podcast for another glorious day at Camp Cobbacy for Boys. Your boys will go to sleep tonight exhausted once more. Surrounded by their friends. Good counselors watching over them. And loons sounding on the lake. All is well in this place set apart. Until we meet.